I'm just a little concerned that like all of our rush, like you're talking about, like you having a concentration of a few individuals that are making all the choices and they're sort of saying, well, we're doing all this so that the rest of you can have this great future, but yet why not still be accountable for here on earth, you know, treating labor well, treating, you know, your teams well, uh, you know, if you've got a logistics company, i.e. something like Amazon, which people are becoming more dependent and fragile on. And if there's some issue with them, then, you you know, there's all sorts of other dependencies or bottlenecks that you don't even know might get affected. And, you know, we've got the environmental issues and you can say, oh, well, like they've got policies and they've got a department so going, well, maybe that's not good enough. Maybe there's something greater that has to, because I think this stuff has to happen in parallel. My wife, I don't know if she's going to want to be quoted here, but she heard in the documentary that part of one of the high profile individual's goals is to extend consciousness and spaces into the solar system. And I joked about some trolling that this individual was doing against another high profile person just this past week on Twitter. And she said, that's not a good example of extending, bringing consciousness into the solar system. <laughs> so there is no per- perfect human, but I'm saying like, but if you're going to have this kind of standard where you are trying to do this really magnanimous thing, I think other parts of your life and business practice and stuff might want to be a little bit reflective of that higher base. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Back in 2007, I had one of my most profound and otherworldly dreams, which ended with this kind of apocalyptic vision. I looked up and saw that the entire night sky was occluded behind a grid of dots, pixels. Most of them were dark, but a few were illuminated, and they read, like a digital clock, 8.33. Now in that dream, I knew that this was a kind of turning point, a revelatory moment, that we were being shown something, that there would be no turning back. And I thought about that dream just a couple weeks ago when I was in Wichita visiting family. My brother is an aerospace engineering student, and the conversation in this episode with Robert Jacobson assuredly grew out of the conversations that I have with my brother about his zeal and his longing for participating in something so great, something so majestic and historic. We were walking in the park by my in-law's house. I looked up in the sky, and at first... For a moment, I thought I must be having that dream. This uncanny feeling grew in me as a string of dots trained across the entire visible night sky. And it took me a moment to realize that these are Starlink satellites, that the world is changing. Recently in the Future Fossils Facebook group, we had an interesting kind of contentious conversation about Starlink and I I should say that you know I was a fan of Robert Zubrin's Case for Mars in high school I've always been future oriented but now here I am at the ripe old age of 37 and it troubles me it's a strange feeling to get what you've always wanted but by the time it becomes real of course it's different than you imagined or expected I suspect a lot of people are feeling like that now 
as the space industry finally gets off the ground. We live in an age when amazing things are possible, and yet it's not lost on most of the people that I speak to that the richest people to have ever lived are empowered by technologies that evolve faster than the regulatory frameworks and the process of governance originally derived to prevent unusually powerful people from unilaterally deciding on the future of civilization. By Future Fossils episode 121 with Divya Persaud, I had become deeply concerned that space no longer held the potential to be this great unifying visionary frontier, but just another perceived terra nullius for us to exploit, fight over, and reshape in our own distorted image. And yet, what did I expect, really? I've always been a proponent of the Chinese proverb, let a hundred flowers bloom. It takes work, practice, to stretch wide enough to learn to accept everything that is, to invite everything possible. And ultimately, regardless of the angles that each of us take on it, that is the promise of space. Room to explore, freedom to begin anew, the opportunity to grow beyond. So today, I ask some difficult questions, but I do so out of love, both for this planet and for what we can become by striving to transcend it. Before we dive in, I want to thank everyone supporting the show on Patreon and encourage you to do the same. By keeping Future Fossils listeners supported, I'm engaged in something that reflects the ethos of the kind of community I am committed to growing and to nourishing. I don't take my creative freedom for granted, and I don't like the thought of compromising the weirdness of this show with venture capital. It means the world to me to know that the people who show up to support future fossils for two, five, ten bucks a month do so because they believe in the merit, the worth of these discussions, the time that I invest in them. It means that you actually appreciate the work that is being done here. And in turn, that means that I'm not using you, dear listeners, as products I'm not selling your attention to someone else in order to take care of my family. And as someone who works in social media by day, I feel pretty good about that decision. So a special thanks to the new patrons and upgraded patrons this last couple weeks. Doug Barton, Dr. Blue, episode 124, if you want to go back, his was great. Joseph Kelly, David Campbell, and everyone else who continues to chip in. If we were all hanging out in the same room, it would be the best party ever. If you've been on the fence about supporting this show, you should know that last week I started a new series of patrons-only bi-weekly episodes that I'm going to treat as the kind of skunk works of this show. Last week I read and commented on my 2016 essay, The Future is Disgusting. Next week... I'm going to preview my latest studio single, a tune about Jurassic Park, and about hyperstition, the runaway effects of our creativity. 
and imagination let loose upon the world. Actually, my exegesis of that song, Life Finds a Way, will make for an excellent follow-up to this episode, and I have been toiling away at this track in secrecy for months, so I look forward to sharing it with all of the $5 and up patrons next week. Also, all levels of patronage get to participate in the Future Fossils Book Club. Our book for June will be Eric Wargo's Precognitive Dreamwork and The Long Self, which I am very excited to announce he will be joining us for that book club call. You can go back to listen to episode 117 when Eric joins us to talk about his first book, Time Loops. The second book is a much more practical, hands-on exploration of time as a kind of information crystal and the profound epistemic shift that occurs when you engage this with a research praxis. So that's going to be really fun, and I hope that you will be there to investigate this richness with us. But for now, I would like to introduce you to Robert Jacobson of Arch Mission which is an extremely cool project I highly recommend you look up, and author of Space is Open for Business. Check the show notes for a link to the Discord server to discuss this episode with other interesting people. And thanks for listening. If I really nitpick because I knew some of the producers, they could have probably, it's an hour and a half, they probably could have cut 15, 20 minutes. There's a little bit of redundancy, but... I think they just were trying to get all of their friends and kind of the proverbial talking heads all in there. You know, that's what they got. But it's good. It's very solid. Well, maybe that's the right place to start, right? Sure. Jerry O'Neill, The High Frontier, totally amazing visionary book, just made into a documentary, saw the trailer for it, got so excited to see this film. We're out of time now where a lot of this stuff, it's not just space, it's AI, it's all sorts of science fictional kind of domains that we've kind of as a species seem to have just gotten used to them being fiction, but all of the technology is accelerating and converging in a way that is bringing this stuff into being while we've sort of fallen asleep at the wheel in a way, you know, like everyone's just sort of used to it being imaginary future land and now it's actually happening and here we are. So like what I'd like to do with you, Robert is you've written this amazing argument or introduction, or however you want to describe Mm -hmm. it, that space is open for business. You've written this book that makes a really clear and compelling case for space as a frontier of economic opportunity and a new domain or arena for innovation. I was thinking about myself as like a kind of a critical futurist or someone who always has to stake myself in a an opposing position in a dialectic so as to further the dialectic. And so out of respect for you and out of respect for the importance of these ideas, I think the right thing to do, and and, and I'm just guessing that a lot of the press coverage that you're going to get for this book is just purely sympathetic. What I'd like to do is, is just hang out with you in the brave space of like actually examining your thoughts as someone who has given so much more attention to this than I have about the the challenges and the complications of moving into space and see where you where you stand on it. But like before we do that, I'd like for you to just introduce yourself to people and and talk about your background and how you ended up writing this book in the first place. 
Certainly. I'm very excited to be here because I just, I love your true diversity of thought that you present on your podcast. And what I'll share is that I didn't come from like the space sector initially. I grew up in, in the state of Florida in the, in the shadow of the space shuttle. And like many kids probably in late 20th century US, like, what do you want to be? It's like fireman, doctor, astronauts, usually, many times peppered in there. And because it was such a strong voice in Florida, it was with me as just a small child. And I think it was also in, in part to my father, Take was a science fiction fan. He seemed to like campy science fiction. And he took me to see films. And on Saturdays, we would watch, like afternoons, we would watch science fiction films and old Star Trek together. And it all was one kind of gumbo. It was just like a gumbo. It was all mixed in together. And it kind of seeded me into the future can be cool and great. And I was more interested in like this, I'm not going to say utopian, but positive science fiction, all the stuff with battles, wars, and or, or dystopian. I kind of recognize early on that this is just makes for like good dramatic elements, but it's not necessarily a world that I wanted to inhabit. And I even went to space camp and I thought, gosh, I want to be an astronaut. But I quickly realized pretty much in high school that this was probably not good. Becoming a NASA astronaut was not going to be my path in part because generally you had to do a, a military service route, which I didn't feel was a good fit for me. Or, and it was about following checkboxes, orders, being really very kind of linear. And it was great for some individuals. I said, okay, it's fine. I'm going to do other things. And my interest very deeply in high school was around music. And in school, I ended up going an undergrad to studying both music and business, kind of in parallel routes, because I had this always entrepreneurial bent. And then I kind of quickly realized that actually being a musician was a very, to survive or something, you had to be very entrepreneurial, but not necessarily thinking about it in, in that terms of um, parlance. You're just trying to like get gigs, hustle, you know, take internship, do whatever to, to survive. And then the early 2000s, I'd heard about the X Prize just as like an idea, but didn't know how real it was. And then it was like, I think in 03, 04, well, the, X Prize, the first X Prize competition happened in 04. I, I really started tracking it in a, in a little more serious way. I said, okay, this is something significant. Maybe this is going to be the catalyst for something, for something great. And I had been working also a day job in, in the commercial real estate sector. And, and I'll never forget, it was around... I think it's June, June 20th or June 21st, 2004. I believe it's June 20th, 2004. I'm playing a music festival underneath the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles. Wait, wait, wait. Called. Under your own name? or I was playing with several groups and I'm looking. I've actually been trying to find the original program. I played with two or three groups that night. It was, the festival was called Ear Jam. It was, it was run for several years by, um, by Julie Adler and, and uh, – uh, and, and another another individual and i played with a couple different groups during that but backstage it, you know it was wrapping up i don't know 10 or 11 o'clock at night i was telling people i said hey there's gonna be like this private rocket launch out in the town of mojave which is about two hours north of la who wants to roll out there it's a sunday night and people are like sounds cool but no well i got one um one buddy of mine scott far he he rolled out with me we didn't leave till 2 a.m we got there three or maybe 4 a.m. It's dark. And there was thousands of people out there. But it was like, this is 2004. There's like no Facebook. Nobody's like, nobody's sending messages to each other. There's nothing. It was a very kind of organic, just people showing up. 
with an idea that sometime in the next 12 hours, there might be a space launch. Really not a whole lot of detail that I was provided. And I ended up seeing that launch and it changed my life. I said, I'm going to be involved. I'm not sure how. And I just immediately started realigning and reorienting reorienting activities to be involved in the space sector. Now, 2021, I've, I've worked with an investment fund, actually sort of several, including a group called the Space Angels Network, participating in several successful space missions through the ARC Mission Foundation, which I'm on the crew of. I ended up doing going back to doing some schooling with International Space University in, in, in 2016, working, investing in a lot of different startups and both initiating and helping enabling, advising, investing. And but it was just kind of like this. I felt I was still a little too early in 2004 because the sector was still kind of early, but it was the perfect time for me. Although a lot of things were maybe early for the commercial side. And now I, um, I, I released this book, Space is Open for Business, and I have an advisory group called Space Advisors. But Part of the title was I wanted something kind of broad and open-ended. But when I use the term business, it's not just about like our old ways or, or whatever somebody might think of as a current way is doing business. I'm using it in a very broad and in somewhat ambiguous sense that I'm just suggesting that space is becoming more open for all of us. And it's in the, the price and access to space is becoming um, lower, more accessible. And for those who just want to do things and freely, freely create in space, I think it's that opportunity as long as they're doing so peacefully. I don't think every person will need to be astropreneur or build a space company. I think it's infrastructure right now that's being created that will facilitate and allow enable humanity to do and create new types of applications, tools. Some things will work, some things won't. I think we'll probably see early days some really, you know, it's like silly YouTube type of stuff. You're like, what happens if we do this in microgravity? But it might be like an, an you know, an independently sponsored type of activity. And we have so many challenges socially, politically, economically here on Earth. Space feels like it really could be one of those a bright spot. We could develop solutions. It might come out of some sort of serendipity in terms of our, our challenges here on Earth. It tends to actually still provide some, you know, under diplomatic context, a little bit of a, of a safeguard. Like, I mean, on the International Space Station right now, Russia and the United States have to cooperate as long as they both have you know, Russian and, and, and then respectively U.S. crew on board and other nationalities. But they're up there 365 days a year and have to be kept, you know, alive and safe. So space can have these, you know, these sort of softer diplomatic aspects to it, too. But we also now have this, um, you know, as we have this emergence of these high profile individuals who are leading space companies with almost the power and strength of government agencies comparatively, uh, we do have to ask ourselves, how do we not recreate all of our, let's just say, less than positive aspects of humanity as we go out into space. And that's, I think, a good segue into the um, documentary you're talking about, which is uh, uh, the High Frontier a documentary about the life of Dr. Gerard O'Neill, who has been kind of a guiding light for many people in this kind of emerging space area. And unfortunately, he passed away, I guess it was in 92. So he didn't get to really see, didn't get to see all of what is being created now. But he's a bit of the superstar. Yeah. So, wow, a lot there. First of all, I also grew up 
in Florida oh, wow. and remember the space shuttle through the whole state. Like you could hear, you know, the supersonic booms. You could you could see it going up sometimes. You know, we would we would all be led out from school into the you know, into the yard, yeah. you know, like into the PE fields and stuff to watch the launches. And my brother, who's an aerospace engineering student at uh, Wichita State University, has actually oh, gone cool. down and watched the Falcon Heavy launch and stuff like that. And so growing up in that environment, my dad worked for Disney. So like growing up in that environment, there is that sense of the visionary horizon, that sort of like Epcot thing. But being part of a family that goes into Disney through the crew member entrance. I was always aware of this other part of it, which is like how the sausage gets made part of it, you know, and I've grown up with this really deep awareness or a great sensitivity to the distinction between the rhetoric and the the promise of a given vision and the sort of gritty details of its reality. And you address a lot of this stuff in this book. When I had... John David Ebert on the show back in episode 65, we were talking about Blade Runner and uh, Blade Runner 2049, which I think is relevant here in its its depiction of a K-shaped future for human species, like a, a split between the Earth-based economy and the the economy beyond Earth on off-world colonies, et cetera. You know, one of the things that we talked about was the blind spots in these techno utopian visions, Fordlandia down in Brazil or or Epcot itself. Mark Nelson was on the show, who was, you know, one of the, the eight people that locked themselves inside Biosphere 2 in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like that's actually a really great example of like the kind of tensions that you're talking about here, because in their efforts to miniaturize the biosphere and reproduce it in an enclosed environment as like a laboratory experiment, they knew that there was going to be a lot of unknowns and that they the small scale of the experiment was going to amplify these feedback loops, you know, and it was going to make certain things like in their case, the greenhouse effect and overproduction of CO2 really, really quick and obvious. And one, another thing that amplified and accelerated was interpersonal tensions between people. You know, there's very few redundancies when you try to minimize like a minimal viable ecosystem inside of a structure like that. And conflict becomes a lot more obvious at shorter timescales. And so all of this is just to, you know, just to provide some background on the challenges of getting out into this space. But (laughs) just to like stake it there, I want you to provide first a a sort of positive statement or a thesis of what you see as possible and what you articulate as possible in space and like the opportunity that is availing itself to us here and why you seem to believe that we would be fools to ignore it. Yeah. I mean, I think the opportunities are almost limitless, but to give some opportunities would be, first of all, an even better um, knowing and measurement of our changing planet. I think the opportunity to create new materials, new medicines, some of the new kind of hard tech, um, utilizing kind of the environment of space that will benefit from humanity. The, the moon, which is just a close, close neighbor, celestial body, just a few days away from us, could be this great training ground and playground 
for us to figure out how we can like do things in the rest of the solar system. But the balances, and, and I talk about this in the book, is that it should not just be that it's it's not like the resources in the on the other planets and moons are limitless. They only have so much mass. There's only so much material there that we actually do need to start thinking about and defining that we will keep certain areas wilderness and untouched. And if we start using, thinking about the more smarter allocation of resources, history is going to thank us for keeping that in mind. Now, it is a little difficult when you're just trying at the moment, just going, well, we, we're just figuring out how to, to walk. We don't even know how to walk, let alone mine the moon and stuff. A lot of it's still kind of theoretical or, or laboratory environment. So we don't need to really worry about that the, the mine's going to get strip, moon, strip mined. But as you're referring to earlier, the progress of advancement is happening so quickly in different places. And sometimes in we could be caught like the frog in the water boiling that all of a sudden, you know, left unchecked, there are, you know, you could have a nation state taking, despite whatever the Outer Space Treaty says, could say, you know what, we are taking this pole on the moon or both poles, and we are making a very large security exclusion zone. And you can select which nation state actors might do this. And then all of a sudden, you other nation states, other, the rest of humanity might not have access to those resources. So I think we have to more fervently talk about these issues and start figuring it out. And, and and maybe there are ways that we'll be able to use, you know, maybe it's leveraging things, whether it's blockchain or AI things to kind of help make all the transactional types of parts of this more fair or, or more equitable for the rest of us on humanity. I think it's, as I said, from, from the beginning, the moniker of business is just a label in part because money has been such an important and dominant theme in many parts of human civilization for such a long time, it seemed like, okay, I just can't sell the story of space. Let's tie it in with a common theme. Many people or most people recognize the concept of money and business and how and commerce and how that works. And it can be enabling. It's just my wish, if I could have one, is just that we just start to improve our behavior out there. Because there is, you know, of course, there's going to be pushback and there's people who can say, well, gosh, we're just going to repeat all of our bad behavior, but in another place. And that's completely, I mean, all these things are possible, but I think if it takes us as an individual, whether, whether we're involved in industry or not, to at least just start thinking about this because small steps can make change and small steps with especially large collective groups can potentially uh, really affect this both present that we're in and this future that we're creating. So space could be this multi-generational plan for humanity, because the facts are is that there are many near Earth objects. I mean, this is that that within seventy five to one hundred years could potentially existential threats to large amounts of populace here on the Earth. And you could say, well, that sucks for you, but if it was your family or or loved one or someone you knew, you probably wouldn't wish for them to be wiped out in a in that type of event. So why not? start thinking about ways to just create other insurance policies. And while we create those insurance policies as having backups of our knowledge and humans off the planet Earth, we will develop new tools and techniques that will hopefully improve life on on the planet Earth. And if there was one major takeaway, I do believe that space could provide 
a way to increase the standard of living for all of the human population that wants that. I'm not trying to say, hey, we're going to force a, a an indigenous group uh, somewhere to say, hey, you got to leave and just start over on this uh, on this O'Neill style cylinder. But I'm saying I, I think <laughs> we could um, improve the quality of life because, I mean, we are dealing with like these threats of climate change as much as right now we're dealing with the pandemic, which is still affecting some parts more greatly than others. It's climate change is, is kind of happening. And it was through space assets. That was the very first, one of the very early ways that we got a little bit of an idea of what that was, even though there was there was discussion about, I think, carbon dioxide atmosphere back in the 19th century. But it was really much later, you know, 100, 100 plus years later that we had other tools to sort of verify and say, OK, there's there's something going on here on the planet that we might be affecting. Yeah. So actually, that's that's a good point that uh, I think a lot of people miss in this discussion that when I had Tanya Harrison on the show, I, I don't know if you're familiar I know of her. Yeah. Yeah. So she, you know, she works for Planet Labs and she made the point that a lot, at, at least at this point in the development of things that a lot of space initiatives are actually about increasing our awareness of this planet and, you know, better, better mapping flows of things. You know, I remember a related initiative I heard, I was talking with somebody who manages projects for DARPA a few years ago, who said that one of the things that they were working on was using satellite imagery to detect overfishing by measuring hull displacement of like every boat on every body of water in the world. The way that that empowers us to take the, you know, the, the quote unquote God's eye view of things and to better understand the earth as a single system, be it from like the Carl Sagan blue marble kind of thinking to this other far more instrumental view. I think that's, that's a huge piece of it, but that ties in with two things. One of which is the sort of uh, metabolic dimension of that. And, you know, you speak to money and, and I, I do think that the dynamics of money for thermodynamic reasons can't be figured out. And I, I want to get there. But before we get there, I want to talk about regulation. Because like this book, you know, you've got a foreword by David Rose. He was an associate founder of Singularity University. It's, I think it's very clear from the way that this book is framed that your audience is largely people that fall within a particular demographic, uh, I would call sort of Silicon Valley and adjacent entrepreneurial thinking, you know, innovation and disruption focused. And the implicit there is that this should happen. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about the history of which earth-based agencies should be in charge of regulating different departments. I found it really interesting that you mentioned that uh, <laughs> the DOT authority exceeds that of both NASA and the Department of Defense on certain things. And it's just like certain aspects of this don't transpose. And then there's the other problem of the pace of technological innovation is based on network bonuses that you don't find in government. You know, it, it innately outpaces government regulation. So there's like there's like two pieces here to that. And I'll stop here and, and let you unpack this, which is on the one hand, we have this hopelessly antiquated regulatory system that still has currently power to squash this and that's portrayed in a let my people go kind of way you know by this argument that that this is a bad thing for the future of the human species 
And in many ways, I completely agree. Then there's this other part, which is that if you look at any complex system, be it, you know, take the human body and the way that costly signaling is deployed by the human body to prevent malignant cells from requisitioning too many resources from the body to fuel their own sort of selfish efforts. And, you know, when I, when I think about the role of inhibitory regulation in a swiftly evolving tech space, be it space or any other space, I can't help but think that the frustration is essential and innately good in some respects, because if you think about like cancer biology, it's about somebody hacking their way into this kind of explosive growth regime whereby the needs of a particular group of cells become decoupled from the needs of the system in which they were originally participating. You think like the human discovery of fossil fuel in this way. So like there's this is sort of a broader conversation around the exploitation of previously stranded resources in the ongoing technological evolution of civilization and our ability to actually keep pace with our own explosive growth that I think becomes extremely pointed in conversations about the development of a space economy where you're talking about private actors that started out with access to you know nation level power and influence but then they go lasso an asteroid that's worth more than the entire planetary economy and you know you get into these questions like those explored humorously by the Facebook group Elon Musk is a supervillain you know, comparing him to Palmer Eldritch from Philip K. Dick's novel, The Three Stignata of Palmer Eldritch. And you wonder, how on earth do we possibly keep regulatory pace with this stuff? So, like, that's a ton to consider, but I'd love to know kind of how you navigate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Okay, so for some of you, wanted to, you know, you've got the name fossils in your, your podcast. So I want to talk about, you know, it seems like fossil fuels and the energy that we have got that from, and I've heard this before, that this was a gift from nature. And we have exploited it. We have used it. Now, we don't have this opportunity again. If we really screw things up even further, and, th- and we've, we've made so many <laughs> mistakes, but if we really continue to uh, mess things up, you know, use up all that resource, use up all the other natural resources, we don't have another well, we don't have another savings account to go back to that would allow us even to go off planet Earth. So that's one reason why I think people like an Elon Musk are highly motivated because they recognize that there's this finite resource. If we don't kind of get ahead of these things, we're not going to be able to go back. We're we're going to uh, be trapped here, most likely. So there's that. And we now just are kind of like, and there's, you know, putting their best effort, Blue Origin, Boeing, NASA, they're all kind of scrambling, but sometimes with their own priorities. (laughs) Regarding Elon Musk being kind of like this, you know, he's a cult of personality. He is is a human. He does try, he is trying to build a vision of science fiction, the type of science fiction that is debatable. What is potentially a little bit challenging and maybe even could be scary could cause some fear, re- real fear, is that he is building a tremendous transportation infrastructure to space. He's gaining traction. He just want a contract with the moon. There's increasing number of other experts uh, in, the, in the industry who think that there needs to be additional resource provide uh, launch providers just so that there's not all just one-stop shopping. 
SpaceX is also creating uh, Starlink, which could be global telecommunications platform. So he's also got an energy company. He is also working on in areas around AI. He's also working on types of engines that their prime fuel, he could potentially control the access points to. If you take all of that and saying, I'm going to start dominating areas around energy, transportation, space transportation, other, all these things, he really could do some very nefarious things if he or other enablers allow him to. I don't, I don't know that answer. Does he, does he wake up thinking that's exactly what he wants to do or not? I don't. But and I do believe there are the rabid fans that just want to follow him to Mars and go do that. But I think most people will realize, unless they're just completely, you know, a hardcore meditator or something, they're not going to be able to spend six months with just a few other people. And, and it's not going to be without tension. You could be with your 50 or 100 of your very best friends, but you're going to be essentially in a can and you're going to be going six to eight months to get to this place. And there's going to be some definitely psychological bumps along the way. We don't have that part figured out yet in terms of how to get humans to thrive in these extreme environments. As you're saying, in a a vessel and then, you know, a mechanical structure. And and then you can't even walk. It's not like Biosphere 2. You can't even walk out the door if you're like, I'm out. You're like, no, there is no out. It's like if you you out, you're in the vacuum of space. And then once you get to Mars or another, say, celestial body, any celestial body, that celestial body in our solar system is still not suited for human life. We have to adapt to it or put safeguards. So and although I think it's still good exercise for us to go do it, and maybe over time we'll figure this out, you know, you think of a place in your mind on Earth that you would you never want to be. That place is still probably better than the environment on these other celestial bodies currently. And so I think the governments are recognizing that, like, okay, the cost of access to space is becoming less in part because of all these other technology enablers where there's all this nexus of, you know, I mean, maybe some would say, oh, we're hitting the singularity. I'm going, no, it's not what like Kurzweil defined as the singularity. It's something else because it's also just not a singular event. It's many events. But in regards to space, it's the price of accessing space, predictability on when you would get your, you know, whatever mass you're trying to take there. I think governments want to enable because they are looking for ways to inspire their citizens. They are looking for new tax revenue. They are looking for new enabling technologies. Space is the strategic high ground. Um, that's why the U.S. Air Force looked back, I think, back in the 50s. They had studies looking at putting a human crewed base on the moon. Why? Because, well, if you have like, you know, you could look out at all the satellites around the Earth. You know, if you're at the moon, that's like you're even further away. There's like, okay, instead of just being on Mount Everest right at the top of the Earth, be in space or even further out so you can see all the other activities. So there's still this going on. But in terms of the um, the way government operates, they, they operate slowly because their governments are not designed for they're not optimized for efficiency. And. It's, it's kind of like when you pay your taxes, it's not like you get to choose where your tax money gets to go or saying like that was a waste of money. I'm just going to defund this and choose that. It's just not the way it currently works. But I do see potential bright spots where like government seems more receptive to like these new technology areas and maybe it's thing- enabling areas like maybe it's like a blockchain or something that could help make government process smarter and better. And I think many times it's not optimized because there's certain frankly, safe jobs in the bureaucracy that 
I'll, I'll pick on the post office. I love getting my mail, you know, even if it's the junk mail, and I appreciate that service. But we know it could be done better, and there's ways to improve this and other government basic government functions. But government's concerned about you know votes, you know districts, all, all you know all this type of short term thinking. And if we all of a sudden radically started changing certain parts of government, there would be there could be some short term pain, whether it's financial, emotional, jobs. But what I think we have to start thinking about is that space could help us create what's next. It's like, how do we take, I mean, humans are creative and we can generally do a pretty good job of cooperating. You know, why not government having a department of imagination and innovation, you know, because all the potentials there, the resources are there. They just, you know, when you have a a department or or somebody in their cubicle and they're just sort of told, this is Gotta, we got to license the satellite this way. And we've been doing it this way so many times. And you're like, well, we could bring in some software to help you and you could do other things. I think we're in this kind of transitional period. And that's me being positive. There's also like, you know, you can look on another way that government might put more brakes on things through regulations or not even regulations, just slow funding down and say, you know what, we're going to fund other areas. But the reality is, is people that say, well, yeah, let's defund NASA, you know, let's or defund that. Well, I said, well, look, there's currently no ATMs or banks in space. All the money that is spent in space is currently spent back on Earth. And it does provide people real jobs, whether they're, you know, government funded or private funded. They're real jobs and there's contractors and subcontractors. So for those who are just kind of like, how does it help me? How does it help my district, my neighborhood? You know, you can probably look around and probably find some type of contractor that is probably has a space related or aerospace related uh, funding from from the government. And I was trying to like pick different pieces in your your statement. So I, I don't know if I kind of hit them all and I wasn't trying to. Well, try yeah, to to- no, no, it's, this is great. Let me refine it a little bit here. I, I think about the, you know, like if, if we look at the last year and we look at the way that economies of scale delivered massive returns due to being able to fold efficiency gains back into themselves. You know, this is this is like true of the way that looking at like Jeffrey West's work at, at the Santa Fe Institute. And he talks about the way that as a, as, as a city doubles in population, infrastructure doubles at 85% the speed and innovation doubles at 115% the speed. So you get all of these infrastructural gains that are folded back into creating more opportunities to increase the rate of social interactions that then lead to higher income per capita, higher patents per capita, and so on. But this is like a, he defines this as an unsustainable process, ultimately, because you are ratcheting up into an ever greater crisis innovation cycle. Any innovation has unintended consequences. That's like the nature of innovation. (laughs) Penn State English professor Richard Doyle talks about this as a trope in trip report literature, as the mistake, because the nature of mind expansion is that you always realize after the fact that you missed some important variable, right? And so it's like the, oh, I should have rather, I should have weighed that out precisely rather than eyeballing it. Or, you know, maybe it was a bad idea to take mushrooms and go to the mall. These things are only apparent in retrospect. And there is something innately Michael Crichton about expanding the surface area of humankind at a super exponential pace 
there's a lot of different ways to cut into this problem. And like I mentioned earlier, one of them is just about the properties of networks themselves. Like I was saying, the coronavirus showed us that economies of scale are actually really not great at responding to novel challenges. There's a sense in which things fragment naturally as a response to a, a kind of like re- scatter, adapt, and remember, to borrow a term from Annalie Newitz, that we respond to crisis by breaking up and, and huddling out into like breakout groups and coming up with different responses to that crisis that are able to you know innovate a little better than these like large, slow collective computations. So trying to wrangle this into you know an actual statement that you can work with. Part of it is that I think the regulatory inhibition of all of this through like incumbent systems and all of their baggage and nonsense is actually helping dampen an explosive growth that would make us more brittle and more vulnerable in some respect. Ecologist Bob May in, in 1972 published this, this seminal paper on how as an ecosystem grows in complexity, it actually becomes more fragile, more, like more susceptible to collapse, which is precisely the opposite of what intuitively we think about these things. You, you mentioned a, a good example about this in the book in terms of the way that a space-based economy becomes so much more vulnerable to uh, electromagnetic pulse disruption, to something like a, a carenting event level solar flare or a nuclear attack. And you know this begs the question about a Fermi's paradox inquiry. You know, is, is it possible that there's a bottleneck here where we end up sort of chasing the the carrot of all of this this new possibility and wealth and opportunity off a cliff? There's a sense in which I worry that we overextend ourselves and become brittle as a civilization. That's part of it. The other part is that you know when you look at the last 40 years of tech innovation and where the wealth has actually condensated. You know, you look at like why we even have a private space industry doing so well right now, and it's because of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk that are reaping by orders of magnitude the lion's share of the wealth that has been created over the last few decades. And so when you look at the global economy as a kind of like uh, super organism, you talk to economists like Brian Arthur, who suggests that it gets to a certain point and you need a wealth distribution infrastructure like a circulatory system because the organism has scaled to a certain size where passive distribution of wealth just doesn't work anymore. And so you're seeing this massive increase in inequality and a decoupling of labor from capital. And like this becomes extremely important in the context of like what you were just saying about how we do, we still don't understand how to actually get people into space long term. We don't even know if a mother can have a child. We don't. It might require one G, maybe not 0.9, right. not 1.1, 0.5. It might require one Earth gravity. And if that, just if that statement is true for to have a, you know, for a fetus to come to full term, and if that is a true statement, kind of a, as far as we know, absolute, that's kind of a really big deal because that means so you can't procreate on the moon, you can't procreate on Mars. And then the things like O'Neill colonies or settlements, bases, where you call private space stations, government station become where you would need artificial gravity. But I'm just a little concerned that like all of our rush, like you're talking about, like you having a concentration of a few individuals that are making all the choices. And they're sort of saying, well, we're doing all this so that the rest of you can have this great future. But yet, why not 
still be accountable for here on earth in turn, you know, treating labor well, treating, you know, your teams well. Let's just take it. So, like, you know, if you've got a logistics company, i.e. something like Amazon, which people are becoming more dependent and fragile on, all of a sudden you're making lots of people dependent on that. And if there's some issue with then, then you, you, you could potentially mess up. You know, there's all sorts of other dependencies or bottlenecks that you don't even know might get affected. And, you know, have got the environmental issues and you can say, oh, well, like they've got policies and they've got a department so going, well, maybe that's not good enough. Maybe there's something greater that has to, because I think this stuff has to happen in parallel. My wife, I don't know if she's going to want to be quoted here, but we were talking about she she heard in the documentary that part of one of the high profile individuals goals is to take extend consciousness in the spaces into the solar system. And I joked about some trolling that this individual was doing against another high profile person just this past week on Twitter. And she said, that's not a good example of extending, bringing consciousness into the solar system. <laughs> so. And I'm not saying that there is no perfect human, but I'm saying like, but if you're going to have this kind of standard where you are trying to do this really magnanimous thing, I think other parts of your life and organizational, the way you organize your life through business practice and stuff might want to be a little bit reflective of that higher base, because it's sort of like saying when, what's that company, that little company, Google said, we're going to do no evil. And then there are all these things where they were potentially enabling some questionable practices by other governments. So don't just make these phrases a moniker practice, not just preach. And as humans, we all have different philosophies, how we can get there. And even if it means that we have to go maybe a little more slower, or maybe I'll use this overused expression, be a little more mindful of things, but it is going to be important because this activity of opening up the space frontier is so incredibly, I think, important and it's going to affect us in the rest of Spaceship Earth in so many ways. We won't get it all right. Let's do a better job of increasing our, you know, of getting it, you know, improving the outcome. Absolutely. I'm in alignment with that. But there's the, like you mentioned earlier, the unenforceability. You know, it's like you kind of need space cops to, or yeah. something. And, we, and it doesn't make sense. As you mentioned in your book, it doesn't actually make sense to have them yet it's it's also kind of impossible to have them without all of this breaking the ground so to speak and and like creating the infrastructure to afford that kind of a thing yeah it's a chicken and egg sort of issue i mean like i kind of think that like okay space force was sort of us space force was like an attempt but before space force there were papers being and ideas being kind of shuffled around and debated around something that would look that the analog instead of going with the space force was looking at something like the U S coast guard or a coast guard being something that would be really tasked on monitoring orbital debris, rescuing spacecraft kind of protection, rescue safeguard, not have the appearance of offensive capability. Even if Space Force right now does not have that, it could. And, 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 and those who are proponents will say, well, yes, it's supposed to be a deterrent for what they'll say are bad actors. But there's some interesting thing. There are some people talking about putting some ledger systems and building some um, so much an index, but a way that you would start categorizing and recording 
all the different assets in space, both natural and kind of artificial, so that you could have like, you know, monitoring kind of who controls what, or maybe you could have financial transactions, leveraging those. And and I think some of that could potentially be used for governance, whether governance ever willing to, again, turn over the keys to things like software, ultimately call it AI or advanced software. That's, I'm not sure in our lifetime yet, but um, because again, you know, uh, it's like, we know there are probably simpler ways of collecting taxes, but are you going to be the one to be able to dismantle the entire IRS and that be doubtful? <laughs> right. I mean, and at that point, it's really clear. You know, I think uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy does a good job of articulating this, that it, it doesn't actually make sense to try and extend our current regulatory infrastructure into space. Uh, yeah. Just as you look at every major evolutionary transition, if you will, of human population size, like civilizational architecture and the way that information systems govern those and have, have, have grown over time. You know, you see radical innovations in, in information technology emerging in order to facilitate like a new structure. So like, I agree with you that it would seem that some kind of distributed ledger, smart contract type thing is going to be necessary and then also that I, I, I gave the like downside of, you know, having this enormous surface area, but the positive is, has already been articulated very well by people like Robert Zubrin that we, you know, we still need a frontier in order to not completely ossify. Like there needs to be stem cell production in your bones or something, at least, you know, in order to keep yeah, this thing and, alive. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and back to like, you know, the resource utilization is that we should be part of the a part of the reason that we would set aside resources not to be touched for a long, long, long time is that we might need some of those additional resources when we want to extend humanity outside of the solar system. And if we were to kind of use up all the the meaningful you know resources, then we would truly be stuck on on the island of the solar system. And it's tough for people to get their head around. And for those, I think, who, you know, if there are people who don't necessarily want to, like, play in this current paradigm, I think that space will still allow those to have a choice to say, hey, take your civilization and culture elsewhere. Even if you're not, like, you're not the ones, like, building it, like, participate, do something. If you've got, like, your crazy-ass idea or maybe it's something just old and ancient and you don't really participate in these Western modalities – I think it's completely great and acceptable that they are done elsewhere in the solar system, that they're transplanted. I think every person or one or people should have the same access to this playground. And it's, um, it's fascinating because it's a lot is happening right now. People don't realize how quickly it's accelerating. If you just go and you look at, look at about a decade, you look at the 1980s or 1990s, like when launches would happen and, you know, might be, one every couple of weeks somewhere around the world. And they're generally launching satellites, maybe a space shuttle launch every few months or so. And now we have groups like SpaceX that are just, it's happening like almost every week or every other week, there's a SpaceX launch. And there's other launch providers that have been um, inspired and motivated by them. And a big dog in the room, which there's still some opacity to it, or at least to me, is China. People's Republic of China, like how are they going to, they're giving like all sorts of mixed signals. 
there's this, something called the Wolf Amendment, where, where it basically makes it very difficult for the U.S. and China to do things in space. But recently, a Chinese spokesperson said, hey, maybe we should cooperate in space. But then at the, in the same month, they'd say, we're going to be doing this with Russia. And going, well, that sends some signals to the rest of the world. And China, now they want to build reusability in terms of their rockets. This month, we're recording this in the month of April 2021. They're supposed to launch the first segment of their space station. So there's all these other things that, that are going to, it's like the, the genie's out of the bottle. And so in, if, instead of trying to control things, how do we just influence things so that they can optimize the situation and improve it? And hopefully, again, not recreate a lot of the mistakes that humanity continues to sort of make here on Earth. And the pandemic was definitely a great way to demonstrate how the lack of resiliency in some of our systems uh, and many of our uh, systems. And, you you know, the fact that somebody made a joke to me the other day that said there was a run on toilet paper, but basically COVID-19 doesn't really cause diarrhea. Let's just say, so that's, you know, a little graphicer there, but yet it caused people to run and, and make a run for those sorts of supplies. So we still have this very primitive way of, and I say primitive in, in, in this type of way where we have a way of thinking that's just kind of like not conscious, not aware, maybe even primitive people. When I say primitive in a respectful way, many times had a more conscious way of being aware of the surroundings. I'm suggesting that like a lot of people are not even going, hey, did you ever think about what COVID-19, what the symptoms would be, what we might actually be short on or medicines and so, I mean, you just sometimes have to laugh at some of this stuff because it's difficult for one to make a change on the outcome. But part of my uh, story and sharing about this book is to hopefully and, and get people to lots of people to think about these issues and think about this as it's quickly becoming part of um, our experience. Yeah. So to to bring this down in a kind of mundane example or or, or like corner that we can use as a, as a case study of you know how we navigate these issues or, or fail to. Page 210 of the copy, the advanced copy of your book that I have, quotes Scott Cordella, a space systems director at the MITRE Corporation, who says, if we're not careful, we face the potential of the tragedy of the commons where companies will focus on near-term business success rather than long-term sustainability and shared safety of operations. And probably nowhere more obvious is this than in the problem of space debris. So given that you're talking about, you know, how do we not just recreate the problems that we we have here? When we're talking about the tragedy of the commons, there's there's two things. One is that the tragedy of the commons has been shown mathematically to be it's an insufficiently low dimensional model of resources in a given system or currencies accessible in a, a given system. It's you know assuming that players cannot move away and find another another opportunity to acquire the same resources. It's assuming that everyone is competing for the same resources rather than linked together in some sort of circular economy. Mm -hmm. And yet it does seem if we are optimizing space, which I think the rhetoric of space as an entrepreneurial opportunity runs a very strong risk of doing this, optimizing interest in space for return on investment, be it financial or be it you know power dynamics related in other ways, then it does become a problem of like, who's going to pick up the trash. So I'm curious, you know, given that we are like, you know, muddling our way through a a way, way, way overdue response, as you you mentioned, 
you know, we society tends to work reactively rather than proactively on crafting and enabling intelligent solutions. <laughs> Whose responsibility are these? You know, is it to to deal with the production of externalities that is created here, and then the fact that there's no one to hold these unprecedentedly powerful individuals and inst- I think more importantly institutions. I think people confuse Elon Musk for like the companies which have their own sort of market incentives and a, a, like a will of their own in some respect. And in, in many, you know, like no matter where you look in human society have basically decoupled from the actual interests of the people that are like constituents or component parts of these institutions. It's the same problem with corporate personhood broadly, which is like, how does a human being hold a Leviathan accountable for running off on its own sort of evolutionary terror and leaving us sucking its exhaust, basically. Yeah, so there's there's a few things in place regarding space junk. So like when you're building a, a satellite, you know, you, you have to get a license to register to a country and you have to, you know, fly with a carrier. The launch provider has to have its launch license. And then you pretty much know where you're going to insert that physical object, that space asset, your satellite, where into which orbit. And, I, and, I, and I'm not a, a telecom, you know, a satellite a space legal expert, but basically if it's in Leo, which is lower earth orbit, extends out to what, a couple thousand miles or so from everything's in free fall. And eventually those, those satellites are generally designed so that they will decay and burn up in the atmosphere. And it's usually not an issue. Now it could be an issue if it hits another object. So there's still like, that's why tracking all assets, whether they're still operational or not is important. Because there have been collisions, most many of these small satellites do not yet have propulsion. They're starting to build that in so they could, you know, move out of the way, go to other orbits. That's a good thing. If you have your big, large communication satellites, the ones that provide your, you know, direct TV, they have to have a budget for um, some fuel. So at the end of their life, they move the satellite to what they call graveyard orbit when it's not a problem. Now there's recent success. Northrop Grumman did a, uh, a test just recently where they were able to dock a satellite against another d- satellite. What this means is that eventually we will be able to refuel satellites and extend their life, which is good. So you can hopefully try to deal with the junk. The Japanese, there was a Japanese startup that just had a first t- launch and they're doing a, a test mission around orbital debris. But the challenge for startup businesses, there's been a few that want to address the, the debris issues and they want to advance this because that's their business motivation is nobody. It's been difficult to get funding around. There's like, who's going to pay for this? Is it taxpayers? Is it governments? Is it customers? That's not been figured out. And the, and the current orbital debris issue is difficult. It's challenging. There's like everything from little bits of like paint size specs to large objects, you know, flying around that could all potentially, you know, it's got kinetic energy, could all run into something else, could cause problems. This, you know, something like a Kepler syndrome. But nobody wants to like say it's bad enough yet. The community consensus is that we're probably going to have to have another incident or two to well, we're like, now the world has to act and make some sort of unilateral decision. I have suggested that one thing that would maybe complementary to this is that we have a global ban on anti-satellite weapons from Earth or in space. I don't seem to get much love when I mention that. I've, I've mentioned that. So, <laughs> like, people don't seem to um, like that. But 
and, and then the argument is that, you know, any moving object in space could be made into a weapon. So it could be a different argument. said, well, my satellite accidentally bumped into your other satellite. It wasn't, you know, with intention. It wasn't an intentful, unlawful act. Uh, so it's going to have to be addressed. I mean, Leonard David uh, wrote this article this month in Scientific American, basically saying that the removal of space junk is not going smoothly. I would say it's barely happening. It's not just, it's just like they're discussing it, they're tracking it. There's several different core technologies that are being developed in different places around the world, but they're, they're just not even pilot stage yet. They're somewhere between, you know, they're like still in the lab and they just don't really have the right funding mechanism to kind of um, do something, you know, in space or at scale. The Japanese have seemed to take a, um, a particular interest in this area. There's a few Japanese, which is interesting. And um, uh, I, I hope there would, there would be further leadership on that. Um, you know, Lord knows they've not done a very good job on the nuclear uh, energy side here. So um, <laughs> for, hopefully they're not going <laughs> to use that side as an example for how we deal with like orbital debris. I mean, yeah, no, you know, nothing against the Japanese broadly because I'm an American and we're shitheads. But you got to look at like the export of cesium-137 and the, you know, the, the, the global consequences of not giving a damn about whaling bans. And like, you know, the ecological implications of that. And you just, and it's the, it's the same thing. It's it, so like without lingering on this and hammering on it more than, more than like truly necessary. There's so many other dimensions in, in the limited time that we have to discuss this. I want to give air to more of them. One of which I mentioned earlier, which is the, the decoupling of labor and capital. It's like, as you said, like if we don't know how to get people into space long-term, then space will continue to be the domain of robot exploration and who owns the robots right now, just rich people. Basically it's not the 1900s version of an automated leisure economy that we were expecting. And so like there's this massive gap socially and economically between what the kind of space sector that we're building and the quote unquote fully automated luxury gay space communism that (laughs) some of my friends uh, wear on t-shirts. And so it's like we have, everybody seems to want the Federation of Planets, but everybody is working towards the Ferengi or whatever (laughs) right now. And so part of the question is, you know, I've heard people argue that actually a lot of the value that would be captured in space, it doesn't even make sense to bring it back to the planet. And then part of it is just this question of the frontier moving on without us and it just being like the domain of of robots and this, you know, so I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess some people say bits and bytes and for a long time we've been taking energy and, and you know, bits and we're, we're monitoring the earth and we're sending, you know, or using it to a better relay telephony, telephone, communication, radio, TV, imaging. So there's been a lot of that value. That's like the bit side. And then like when you're dealing with atoms, I do think there will be unique things we'll create in the microgravity environment that will be used. Some will be highly specialized, you know, maybe, you know, medicine materials. But I don't think it's unrealistic anytime soon we're going to be bringing water back and saying, here's some drinking water, you know, like, you don't have to do a lot of measurement to say that probably doesn't 
seem very feasible. So I think it's a bit of both where we have like some things in this kind of Leo economy, highly specialized, bringing back to earth. It's kind of like back and forth, a lot of activity back and forth. The moon is this transfer. It, it becomes this playground for physical and creative play and intellectual play. And there's a transference back to earth. Well, there will be some IP intellectual ideas that are that are be useful back on earth and will and it'll be like a training ground for how we operate and live both robotically human and with humans and become more like homo spatians a term that frank white termed out in the rest of the solar system and so i think it's you know again space is both an enabler it is a domain and an enabler i think their robots will for almost forever be a necessary component to space, the scouts, to helping us, complementing us. Because it can be some things that are just too dangerous for us. Like, why are we going to send like 100 astronauts on this asteroid with like proverbial picks when you're going to have a, a team of uh, a fleet of robots and a few overseers or repair people or service people, you know, or, or specialists? That seems to me a little more likely to happen. You know, and there's also just some, you know, again, human limitations of just we're soft and squishy and fragile and the communications are going to be challenges until maybe and maybe I've heard it's maybe 20 years out that we have maybe a real commercial operational type of quantum communications infrastructure. And I think if we if and when we sort of develop that, that could help maybe leapfrog us in some of the issues where just like the time delays on with communication um, so there are these kind of like these things where people are going, well, well, gosh, gosh, if my if my like my friend or my cousin is living on on Mars and I have like this 20 minute delay or 10 minute delay, how do I have conversations with them? I said, well, gosh, there potentially might be ways that we could work through that, but it's probably a good 20 years away. Yeah, that that would change everything. And yet again, it I can't get my head out of thinking about what the enormous progress in hyperconnectivity just on earth has done to emulsifying human culture. Well, so does you know? that so does that make us a bit more like the Borg rather than the Ferengi here on earth? Yeah. Yeah, and 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 actually, you know, Star Trek did explore relatively well is just how vulnerable the Borg are to because of a, a centralized information infrastructure, how vulnerable they are to, you know, a computer virus or this kind of thing. And we saw that with the 2008 bank collapse, the banking network was entirely too correlated. And, and we know that trading activity becomes uh, dominated by like herd based following action that, you know, when everybody is just chasing the Dogecoin pump, for example, I mean, thanks. That's a bad sign. Yeah. You know? exactly. so there's like the- How is when you're, when, when you're doing posts on Twitter or Reddit or pick your medium and all of a sudden an entire market changes or a company that when you, you look at the fundamentals is actually kind of struggling but then on paper, its market value is all of a sudden like dramatically increased. You got to say like there is something a little bit wonky and crazy about what's going on where it used to be kind of in the good old days. It sometimes took like decades to sort of build a business that would have a billion dollars of a market cap. And, you know, the People will say, say, well, no, we have better communication. We have more immediate market data. Supply chains are stronger. You can hire talent, get more optimized. You know, there's all these arguments to sort of say, no, you can grow a business much faster. And that some of that might be true, but you have to sort of say to what effect 
And, and again, if, only, if most of the wealth capture is in just a, a few individuals, life certainly isn't fair, but you have to ask yourself going, do we want a, a world where it's just fewer individuals that have all this access and other people are kind of basically at their discretion going, ah, maybe we're going to fund this new thing or that when you have very few individuals that are both playing philanthropist and market maker. And that's kind of the world. So it kind of, kind of connects with like some of the space stuff. And I don't have all the right answers. And and I'm kind of uh, personally probably somebody that's more middle of the road, but I try to think both rationally. But I'm somebody that wants to have my heart and my mind aligned, not just in my head and, and not like realizing that there is, you know, humans' lives at stake. So to that point, you devote sections to this book to both better business models and to new economies. And I think that this conversation has been in low orbit and is now in decaying orbit. Maybe we can land it uh, rather than crash it on the subject of given all of the issues that we have raised in this call, what do the best minds, because you're, you're steeping in them, like you're, the blurbs for this book are just like a who's who of people, visionaries in this space. What are the best minds in this area thinking about in terms of Everyone is using exponential growth curves, exponentially accelerating innovation and planning ahead, internalizing the disruption rather than just letting the wave hit them, turning and swimming into it. So everybody's assuming that this is going to enable this and is going to enable this, and that in another 10 or 20 years, all of these new things are going to, these new opportunities for governance and for uh, you know incentive structures are going to become possible. And then it's not just going to be about empowering space. It's going to completely transform the way that we organize things back on Earth. So like, what are those people imagining as far as the new economies that are going to open up in 20 to 30 years or whatever time horizon you choose that are going to not only resolve these problems in space travel, but also in the other problems that we've created for ourselves in the incumbent earth world life. What do we have to look forward to here in terms of like equity, you know, the closure of manufacturing loops, bringing things back. How does this, how does this look more sustainable? How does this look more equal uh, in the years to come? Well, so I'll just, there's some, there's been some uh, mergers and acquisitions activity as there are in almost every industry, but there's been a few Uh, of some uh, acquisitions by holding companies, private equity groups in the, um, in the space sector. And they're still looking pretty traditional. You know, some of the original founders of those companies had, and maybe continue to have very visionary ideas. And they started with really a modest first step with a very big audacious goal. And then they took it as far as they could. And they sort of either ran out and this is, I'm just, I don't want to give any specific examples here, but they either were just like they, they basically needed to onboard more financial capital because they kind of ran out of some uh, financial steam. And they said this, you know, bringing all these holding companies or private equity groups um, as partners would be a way to continue. But these transactions are still very conventional. Founders and early employees got stock and cash into these new companies. So it's still kind of like, you know, where some of these people bought into very, you know, exponential models of like that they learned from, you know, maybe, you know, in 
say, in educational systems that were being or new types of educational systems, groups like Singularity University that are promoting thinking about singularity, uh, exponential change and growth, which they are investing in. They're creating space companies. They're trying to build. They're taking saying, hey, we know there, there's this small market need right now, but we have this big vision of doing this. And they're they're doing that. But in terms of like more fairness or equity, the rest, it's still difficult because we they'll say it's fair. They're like, hey, we gave, early, you know, gave early employees like some stock. Is it enough stock? Is it not enough stock? Who knows? It's debatable. How but is that it, not a pyramid scheme? Yeah, exactly. So there's still these or or you have companies that are just, you know, a venture capital firm invests and then they do another round. And it's it's kind of like they keep pushing the the opportunity down because they kind of recognize it might take a long time to get to an exit or profitability. So they keep selling it to another group of investors. So that's kind of the, the hurdle uh, for me. It's like that. It's not a chasm of death, but it's going, I do think there are these founders, employee and, and team members who they see the big audacious goal. They've got the near term kind of tactical work that they're doing for this much bigger vision. And I applaud that, but it's still difficult because of like when you're, you were referring to the status of, of a corporation in our society, it's basically almost more powerful than us as a human, you know, just one individual and it has this legal status. There's still, and I don't know, if, I'm not an expert on this, but there seems like there's still some change that needs to happen to sort of make this improve this business part process saying, hey, you're creating this like things that are futuristic. You want to create a space economy. You're watching TED Talks, you know, you're attending different, maybe non-accredited academic programs, but thought-provoking and make you do real work, but maybe they're unaccredited. But yet it's very difficult for you as a business practitioner today to sort of take those things and saying, why can't I put every bit of time invested onto a blockchain that every person did? There's all these things because most investors can be like, I'm not investing into that. I know there's too many risks and unknowns. So I don't have the answer, but there, but there are definitely some gaps here. And I think it would be great to see if the space sector attempts to start doing some of that too. It could be you know, not representational, but could be heralded as, as a beacon for other industries too. Because imagine if they're saying, gosh, look what they're advancing in the space industry. Let these other terrestrial industries that also start taking advantage of those innovations or that evolutionary process. Yeah, I mean, it seems related to the problem that Robert David Steele, former CIA agent, depicts in his work, in his campaign for open source uh, intelligence and intelligence sharing between intelligence agencies, where he's like, there's the argument is locked tight that this would benefit everyone if we stopped regarding this in this like siloed parochial way. A very similar thing is happening in the sciences where it's like, it's clear that major scientific breakthroughs come at the intersection between these different disciplines, but the whole thing is governed by this incentive structure in academia that actively inhibits that kind of you know lateral thinking, that kind of interdisciplinary work, translational and synthetic work. And it's just, it's just like such an obvious problem everywhere we look. But to set all of that aside, because we're coming here to the end and I, I want to leave it on a, you know, a note that like, I want to return to the optimism or the hope, at least anyway, that all of this is anchored in. You talked about starting out as, as an artist, as a musician. And you mentioned early in this call that you still think about this a lot in terms of not just the expansion of economic opportunity, but of the cultural creation 
in humankind. And I, you didn't put it this way, but like there is in the way that you write about it, in the way that Jerry O'Neill wrote about it, in the way that Tanya Harrison wrote about it, and all these other people, you know, a a kind of secular spirituality that emerges here. So I would like to just give you an opportunity to riff as we draw to a close on the sort of promise and potential to the human spirit on this frontier. And I think ultimately, even though, again, you put it in very business terms in this in this book, I think there's a strong argument that in this society, we've got everything completely ass backwards and that art is not a luxury that is afforded to us by affluence, but art is the wellspring of affluence. Like it is the very basis of human existence, like this ability to create and express and discuss that which is otherwise ineffable. So yeah, yeah, just I'd love to hear you riff on the creative promise of life beyond this planet. As far as I know, the majority of us were sort of born under these earthly skies. And, you know, we look into the sky at night or in the morning or the twilight, and the sky has been inspiring us inhabit dreams and nightmares and for almost all of us and it's you know and when you have an opportunity to get a little bit closer look an immediate way very immediate access to spaces just using binoculars or telescope astronomy is a great way to experience space and even just understand the beauty of it and just going wow this is just it's inspirational and that's where i talk about this ro triple i it's like return on imagination innovation and investment or you know flip it around the way you want just doesn't have to be about the business but space is constantly inspiring and i think as humans i think creativity and creating and making is part of what we do and it's been part of our our evolution and for those who say well i'm not really creative say if you're you know you're you know, building a contract, building software, something, it's type of creativity. It's not necessarily, it has to be the art. But I do think that more humans actually do hold artistic creativity than we're thought. We're just, many Western paradigms limit us. And I've spent some time in, in Indonesia, a place I, I really enjoyed and spent time in, in, in different parts of Indonesia. But I'll, I'll speak briefly about Bali, which is maybe more familiar to a lot of, has lots of tourism. And for those who've been to Bali, you see the arts and culture are permeated through every part and they're interwoven through daily life along with the predominant religion is a form of Hinduism that connects animism to those local tradition, Hinduism with animism. And it is completely normal. You'll meet a taxi driver or a business owner and they're like, yeah, I've got my business or I got my, this, is my business thing to make some money, but they will also be a, a bamboo carver. They will be a dancer and it is all completely normal and acceptable. And it's something I miss a little bit in our culture where things are segmented and so highly specialized. Now, granted, there are always going to be those who, who focus on a, a single or just a few activities and that is all they do. And that's fantastic. And they get a certain high level of, of performance that because they can, you can only, you know, that's what they're focusing on. But I would tell individuals that I think it's healthy for us to explore the unknown and try different thing, you know, different things. Um, myself as a musician and creator, that has definitely informed and helped my business intuition, being able to think on my feet, being able to kind of improvise in daily life in terms of figuring out problems or being able to ask or figuring out how to get that solved. And 
And I think that was a helpful part of it was was having this being able to imagine and create very freely, especially in under, when you're dealing with a stressful situation, you're like, gosh, it feels like there's only A or B, but there's actually more answers. And if you just allow yourself to be in a state of awareness, um, I, I think that tapping into the art, that side of our creative spirit and the subset, the artistic spirit does allow that, allow that expression in space as a theme there's, I think, just infinite amount of, of stories and ideas and modes of modes that we can create from. Even if you're like, I'm not interested in the business of space, just get out of the business parlance that maybe I have spoken to or sometimes that I write about. But just it's just um, it's, it's just some of my cultural expression. It doesn't have to be yours. And I'm not trying to uh, superimpose it on anybody else. I'm just simply saying is that th- that space is a theme and a root that can open up so many solutions and so many new ways of creativity, new ways of being. And you say new ways of being, well, just imagine, you know, you think about like if you were saying one of these O'Neill sort of structures where you have one G of gravity on that side, it's, it's like earth, you know, you could have lakes, you could have little hills, you could have riding on a bicycle, perfectly normal. But you take a little 10 minute journey to the middle of the cylinder where it's microgravity and you have people doing aerial ballet and doing a microgravity research, that could be a, a, an, a, an additional complementary way of being. And it's not an either or. It's something that humanity might be able to have these multi-modes of expression with. Yeah, certainly. We just finished book clubbing Greg Egan's novel, Distress, for Future Fossils. And that book ends with this vision of an explosive radiative diversification of humankind, where it's like we realize that the only thing that we actually have in common is a shared physics. And so we give up this power conflict over what it means to be human or what it means to be healthy. And it enables this effloration of human expression to a truly post-human situation in which code poets are writing in biology. And and we become an an entire, not just the superhumans living in orbit versus the workaday fox stranded in the gravity well, but like a truly uh, magnificent display of, you know, to borrow that Chinese term, like let a hundred flowers bloom. So yeah, I just, it is such a beautiful and, and passionate and inspiring thing. And I just really, what hope I have that we're not going to accidentally destroy ourselves in the process of realizing this dream I have through the work of people like you and of your friend and colleague, Armin Ellis at Arc Mission. And uh, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Before you go, any last thoughts or, or pointers or places? Obviously, people should read your book. What else should people know to follow up on this? Got well, this documentary, The High Frontier, is probably going to be a potential touchstone for this conversation. I think people should just not should do anything, but I mean, I like to think of the world has a lot of gray, and I don't have everything figured out in the book. I, what I try to do is explain that there's some of the possible verticals that are emerging, and here are some of the possibilities. And if one wants to play in this arena uh, professionally or personal or more, there are many different routes. Don't let anybody tell you no that you can't or are unable to, that there are many possibilities. And if you're kind of like, you know, struggling, saying, well, I'm interested in this, reading people like Zubrin, some of the hard science fiction is good, like Heinlein, you know, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, you kind of can't go wrong with some of that. 
you know, there's many great thought leaders all, you know, kind of sharing, you know, find what resonates with you, take, take what works, leave the rest. I have a professional consulting practice where I do work with organizations regarding who are interested in developing a space strategy and with, and we work with select startups. Our commission is an area where we're backing up human heritage on and off planet earth. So that's a great way to connect where we're, we've got some uh, future missions for 2021 and beyond that we're advancing. And it just, uh, it was great to uh, speak with you and, and to, sh- to share a little from my insights. And I'm kind of humbled by many of the guests that you, you've had on. So I feel very uh, fortunate to be able to have uh, uh, some time with you today. Thanks a lot, Robert. Have a good one. And uh, thank you, Mike. I'll see you in or from orbit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.